we will jump in here. I just want to take a minute just to explain what's actually going on each night. So as I said, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Mark together. Now, normally what we do at the table is we take a book of the Bible and we walk verse by verse, sentence by sentence, all the way through that book until we've kind of covered every word of it. We've done that with Mark before, uh, but it took us an entire school year. It took us 30 weeks. So the idea of trying to get through all of Mark in nine weeks, and we're devoting just tonight to introduction to it. So eight weeks to get through uh, the entire book of Mark would seem to be a, a bit much. So here's what's going to happen each week, except for this one, sort of. Um, each week from here on out, here's what we will be doing. Um, we're going to take two chapters of Mark every week that we will walk through. So next week we'll jump in with chapters 1 and 2. We're not going to have time to go verse by verse, so instead what we're going to do is the person who teaches is going to stand up and give a 10 to 15 minute summary, kind of showing how all the stories in those two chapters flow together to show what Mark is trying to prove in that moment, what, what point he's trying to make, because Mark strings his stories together in such a way to make a specific point about Jesus. So they're going to spend 10 to 15 minutes summarizing that and walking us through it, and then uh, they'll take one story from those couple chapters and dig down into that story. And we'll spend that night, the next 30, 40 minutes together, exploring in depth that one story. Here's what you can do to kind of be prepared, since we're not going to be able to go verse by verse, as usual, is you can make sure that at home you are doing the reading. So before next week, if you will make sure that you've read through Mark chapter 1 and chapter 2, Uh, to be prepared and ready. And that way, when we're summarizing and we're showing how these stories string together, your mind is catching that and you're seeing it. Oh, I remember that. I remember reading that. I highlighted that in my Bible when he said that. Those kinds of things um, to be prepared and ready to go each week. We're really excited about this. This is, I was telling telling Ryan today, this is probably my favorite gospel of all four. It's the shortest. I think it gets sometimes the least amount of attention and credit, but, but I love it. And I'm really excited for us to get to explore it together. I'm going to hand it over to Ryan and let him take it from here. All right. Um, I was telling Drew, this is now my uh, favorite gospel 1B. John will probably never be um, usurped in my mind, but I actually got to sit um, last week in a classroom and uh, we, did, we did all of Mark in five days, about eight hours a day, um, being taught from the Bishop of the Horn of Africa in, um, in, the, in another church tradition. But what Jim and I, who sat in that class together, found out is that though Bishop Le Marquand is from a radically different tradition than we are, he's still in the Protestant world, but still very, very different, it was so encouraging to hear him love the scriptures and teach them as faithfully as he could, and it was it was incredible. And um, yeah, it gave me a new a new appreciation for Mark. I think one of the reasons that I have neglected Mark it is definitely my least studied gospel until last week. I think one of the reasons that I've neglected it is because it's almost entirely found in really the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> like if you read Luke, you've read Mark. But if you read Luke, you haven't read Mark, how Mark arranges the stories. And so Mark has a very different way of presenting almost the exact same information that Luke does. Luke just adds, um, what would it be, eight more chapters. Um, and so Mark, though he all of his material is included in another gospel, the way that he arranges it um, says the same message in a, in a very different way and in a very profound way. 
But I want to uh, I want to open us up in prayer. So this is a, this is a prayer that I found this morning. Um, it's called a liturgy to begin a purposeful gathering, and I thought that that sounded like something that we could do tonight. So if you would um, please just bow, and I will pray this over our time tonight. Accomplish your purposes among us, O God. Tune our hearts to the voice of your Spirit. Wake us to be present to you and to no one, and to one another in these shared hours we are given. For it is you, O Lord, who have so gathered us from various places, and you alone know our hearts and our needs. Among us are some who arrive anxious, some who are lonely, some who suffer pain or sorrow. May we in our joys find grace to enter the sorrows of others. Among us are some who arrive rejoicing, hearts made light by good news, good health, glad anticipation. May we in our sorrows find grace to embrace the joys of others. Let us prize these moments and care for one another deeply, for each of us and our relationships to one another are precious and fleeting. Let us prize these moments and care for one another deeply, for each of us and our relationships to one another are precious and eternal. Breathe upon our gathering, O Spirit of God. Grant each of us a place to humbly receive and to faithfully serve, that we might know in this brief gathering a foretaste of that greater communion yet to come. O Father, enlarge our hearts. O Spirit, expand our vision. O Christ, establish your kingdom among us. Be at work even now, O Lord. May your will in us this hour be accomplished. Amen. Okay, so, Mark. Um, to add to what Drew suggested in terms of reading for the two chapters that we'll be discussing each week, roughly, um, I also encourage you to listen to it, because perhaps more than any of the other three Gospels, Mark is, they're all meant to be heard. Actually, Luke's might have been the only one that was intended to be read. It was written to a man named Theophilus, the God-lover, though it was quickly thereafter read aloud to, 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 the, uh, to, to churches. But his is the only one that is addressed to a person, and therefore designed to be read. Mark's is so... Mark's, it's like he's telling the story around a campfire. It's meant to be heard. So, to that end, um, whether you have the YouVersion Bible app or the, the new fancier version of that, the Dwell app that puts some cool music underneath it, listen to Mark. It, it, when you get rid of the verses, uh, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers, the story just starts to sound seamless. And uh, at least to my eyes and to my ears, a little more beautiful and coherent whenever I get all the little modern reading aids out of the way. Um, why do we call it Mark? Uh, this this gospel's anonymous. Truth be told, I'll just skip straight to the end. We have no idea and we will never know who wrote this gospel until eternity comes. Church tradition says that John Mark, who would have been... Um, Perhaps the youngest disciple, he would have been a traveling companion of Paul, and then he would have been a uh, traveling companion that Paul told to go home and grow up, and then he would have been a restored traveling companion of Paul, and then later on it seems in his life that John Mark would have been a close companion of Peter in Peter's ministry in Italy, primarily in Rome. 
Church tradition says that Mark wrote this gospel, though it's anonymous, and we get that from an early church father, second century, named Papias. Now, where I don't have any problem going along with it is, it seems like the rest of the church just said, yep, that sounds good. No one really argued it or refuted it. We just have no evidence to support it other than Papias said, John Mark, the companion of Paul, and then later Peter, wrote it. Um, if you want to see kind of the references, um, he's, he's, a rela- he's a relative of Barnabas. In, uh, in Acts chapter 12, you see that conversation going on. That's where he has a little run-in with Mark. In Colossians 4, Paul talks about how critical Mark is to his ministry, John Mark. And so you see that their relationship has been restored. In 1 Peter 5, you hear Peter talking about his close connection to, to Mark. So we'll go with that. John Mark, the disciple wrote it. It is often thought that he is um, recounting a story about Jesus the Messiah um, as he has learned it from sitting under the ministry of Peter. So often you'll hear this kind of summarized as Mark is a collection of stories drawn from Peter's preaching in, in the church in Rome. Sure, sounds good. Again, church tradition. One of the reasons that we find that to be a plausible idea is A, this is written to a predominantly Gentile audience, and I'll tell you why in just a second, but B, it has one of the most um, self-deprecating takes on Peter of the four Gospels. And a lot of people speculate that you see in Peter's preaching some contrition for the foolish mistakes that he made during Jesus' earthly ministry, culminating, of course, in his... uh, three times over denial of Christ, right before his passion. Um, Before we get to why we believe this is written to the church in Rome, let's talk about date, although they're connected. Um, There is no question, either Matthew or Mark are the first Gospels written. One of those. Um, I would say the vast majority of scholars will take Mark as being the earliest Gospel written, for a number of reasons. It is the, um, the shortest, as Drew mentioned, it's 16 chapters. Matthew is 28, Luke is 24, and John is 21. 21. So it's the shortest. It also seems to be the most hurried and abrupt. It's like Mark is doing the heavy lifting for everybody else. He's just getting all these ideas out there. And then Matthew refines it, and Luke refines it, and John does his own thing. And those are, those are plausible ideas, although... Um, I, I actually wonder if maybe church tradition, early church tradition actually places Matthew early, the, the first gospel. That's why it's the first gospel in the New Testament. Um, I wonder if they were onto something, though. Because if I were Mark, I would feel like I could write a gospel as abrupt and as um, seemingly incomplete as I have here, knowing that Matthew's is out there and Matthew's got the full Monty. Now, this might be, um, well, let's look at this. So if, if Mark is shorter than Matthew, it's interesting. Whenever you go and look at the actual stories, um, Mark is longer than Matthew. So what I mean by that is the stories that they both tell, Mark and Matthew both tell, um, Mark's stories are generally longer. And uh, it's just that Matthew has a lot more stories, so Matthew fills it out. And Matthew has this five-part structure that's supposed to emulate the, the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, stuff like that. But, for example, what I put in here, um, 
yeah, the, uh, the story of, this is just one example, but it's a pretty consistent pattern. The story of the beheading of John the Baptist. So you remember the story. Um, John the Baptist gets himself into a little hot water because he tells Herod, hey, you're not allowed to marry your brother's wife. And uh, <laughs> the said wife is a little upset about that. So her daughter has a real seductive dance in front of all these people. And he says, anything you want, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. She asks her mom, who's an adulterous woman, what should I do? What should I ask for? She says, give him the head, ask for the head of John the Baptist. That story is told in um, maybe all four Gospels. Definitely in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, in, uh, in Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And in Mark, it's in chap- Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. So... And you can go play the word count game, but Matthew gives you 12 verses for the same story that Mark gives you actually 14 verses. 15 verses? 15 verses. That might not seem like a lot, but over the course of an entire gospel, Mark's stories are consistently longer. And I don't think, especially if you look at his kind of crude way of writing, I don't think he is intentionally taking something that's beautiful and poetic, which Matthew is. Matthew's a very high order of Greek writing. He's not taking it and then roughing it up and making it longer. I think that he's, he's, um, he's intentionally filling some things in, if that makes sense. So, anyway, all a weird, really weird and circuitous way of saying, I think Matthew was first. And I think Mark took Matthew and said, I can tell a little bit of a different story, and I don't need all these extra stories that have already been covered, and I can fill in some things. So, in the end, it doesn't matter but it's a fun thing that people like to argue about. Um, one of those two is definitely verse. Okay, the occasion. The occasion. Mark's gospel is clearly written for Gentiles outside of Palestine. That would be the Holy Land in the area of Jerusalem. Uh, one of the reasons that we know this to be true is because Mark, at several moments, takes a, an Aramaic phrase. So Aramaic would be like a, uh, like a hick version of Hebrew. So, um, yeah, just real slang form of Hebrew, that it, street Hebrew. And uh, he takes these phrases and he puts them in the story and then he gives you these parenthetical explanations as to what they mean. Which tells us he's not writing to Palestinian Jews or to even a church in and around Jerusalem or Judea or I would even say up in the Galilee. He's writing to someone else. And then you pair that with Papias and others who root Mark in Rome, writing to the church there. Um, that's that, so, um, that's his, his context. Now, date. If, if, if I think that Mark is later than Matthew, I, I, here's the the most precise I can be. Somewhere between 55, post-Jerusalem council, somewhere between 55 and 75. And I can go as late as 75 because there's an important event that took place, the destruction of Jerusalem. When you're dating Gospels, everything revolves around this date, A.D. 70. Um, In Mark's Gospel, the reason that I think that it's possible that it's later than 70 is because in his account of Jesus foretelling the destruction of of Jerusalem, it's not that he needs that event to have already happened to explain that prophecy, but he has this little parenthetical aside in there when Jesus is talking about that this temple will be torn down, Mark says these words, let the reader understand. 
which at least opens up the possibility in my mind that he's saying, wink, wink, nod, nod, you guys remember what happened two years ago? So, again, if I, if I allow for Matthew to be the earlier gospel, probably in the 50s, and, and Mark to have developed something thereafter, and, um, and Peter dies in the mid-60s, early to mid-60s in Rome, then at that point, Mark might feel the need to kind of codify and circulate Peter's teachings through a, through a gospel. Anywhere between 55 and 75, I would say date, is, uh, is totally fine. Um, okay, this could completely blow up in my face, but that's fine. Um, before we get into like the bells and whistles of the whole story, I want to, uh, to have a little exercise here. Who has studied Mark before at some level? All right, Jared, I feel no problem picking on you. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. To emphasize that this is a narrative account of Jesus' um, life, ministry, Actually, it's really just his ministry. It doesn't tell us much about his life uh, before that. I have, with no references to chapters, typed out the section headings for all these chapters. And Jared has just graciously volunteered to try to put the book in order for us. But I think this is a helpful thing because what you can do is you can kind of summarize the stories here and ask the audience where they think this might fit in the story. So here, I'm going to give you the easy ones. Come up here. So each paper is two chapters. So this is one and two. So kind of tell them the stories that are on here. Uh, the Temptation of Jesus, uh, Healings at Capernaum, A Man Cleansed. Well, you just need to know that the baptism of Jesus the is there. So that tells us that's the first chapter. Okay, so put that there. So we know that's chapter one and two. And um, here we go. Here's chapters 15 and 16. And I have asterisks there. You've studied Mark. Do you know why? Because those things don't happen in his account. Okay, what do you mean? Uh, basically, after the resurrection, Mary runs off to the tomb and the gospel ends. Okay. So if, you'll, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that after, um, I think it's verses 9 through 16, the gospel ends at chapter, at chapter 16, verse 8. And then a couple hundred years later, uh, a little overzealous scribe thought, this is a terrible ending. Let's add a little bit. And, uh, and so you'll actually see that in your, in your Bibles, that there should be like a, the earliest manuscripts do not contain this story um, because we're not snake handling fools type stuff. That's Ryan's version of the Bible. Actually, you have my permission if you're a paper Bible person like mine. I feel like I have done no great sacrilege. I just went to those paragraphs and <laughs> crossed them out. Mark didn't write them, they're not scripture, and we could talk about them, but they're not the word of God. Okay, so, you have, you have six more. This is really not that bad. You have six more that, that uh, account for 12 chapters. So Jared is going to kind of walk us through how he's putting this together so that everyone who can't see can get a sense of it. So we have the Messiah's Herald, so that's, uh, that's John the Baptist's baptizing ministry in the Jordan. Jesus shows up and he's baptized and it goes all the way down to he calls Levi the tax collector then you have questions about fasting and then he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He was smart okay. to put the transfiguration. So I put, this one has the, the transfiguration, uh, the second prediction of Jesus' death 
uh, who's the greatest, the rich young ruler, uh, those ones. In the middle. Do you know what chapters those are? Well, eight and nine wouldn't be on a chapter. It always starts with oh, an odd chapter. Okay. Um, so down at the very end, we have the trial, the exchange of Jesus uh, and Barabbas. Um, by the way, a really, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in some little interesting things that I learned last week. Barabbas, do you know what that means? It means, that, and this blew my mind. I have never caught this. Bar is always son of. Bar Abbas means son of the father. It's crazy that they exchange the son of the father for the son of the father. Like, I've never caught that irony in the story. Okay. Okay, so I put, this is the orange one, and the last story is Peter denies the Lord, which okay. faces up really quickly. And then this one, the first one, is the triumphal entry, and so obviously we'll go right there. Yep, so that, that section ends, so that's 16, 14, so that would be, Chapter 12, ending with the widow's gift, the widow's might. And it's important. Like, this is where the story really starts to line up. Because right after that, Jesus sees her devotion to the temple, says that she has put in all that she had, and then he condemns the temple, which is the very beginning of, uh, of chapter 13. And he gets into kind of this a big apocalyptic section, denouncing the temple. Okay, ministering to the multitude. So here's where Mark gets interesting, because you have these... These nature miracles, yeah. like uh, like ca- causing the wind and the waves to do what he wants. He's not helping. He's not saying what he's doing anymore. Okay, but so, okay. Okay, wait. So I put this one here because I know that at some point before Jesus, the transfiguration, Jesus does something on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee. Maybe walking on water. Yeah, which is actually this one. (laughs) Okay, and so these two are the last two, and I know they go together because... Oh, wait. Okay, so this is the feeding of the 5,000. Yep. Okay, so then the 4,000 goes here because that one happens afterwards, and so I guess that one will go here. So this is what I like, is this forces us to... Okay, there's multiple feedings. There's a progression of, of... Miracles that go from calming the wind and the waves to healing a, a demoniac to healing someone with skin diseases to raising someone from the dead. Yep. And did you get that in the right order? I think I'm confident with these three and that one, but these four right here, I'm not sure. You actually got it in perfect order. <laughs> you did a great job. All right, now they're in my way. But don't tear those up because that's a fun way of kind of thinking through the story. And, and Mark, again, not that the other three Gospels don't have story to them, but Mark's structure is so um, preposterously clear. Like I said, Matthew has this five-part structure that's really following the, it's kind of mimicking the five books of Moses or the five books of the Psalms. But to be honest, whenever I look at that structure, sometimes it feels a little stressed. As, as brilliant as Matthew was, this highly educated tax collector, sometimes it feels, ah, uh, that just doesn't line up as neatly as I thought it should. Mark's is much more simpler. Maybe I'm just too dumb to see what Matthew's doing. Mark has this beautiful three-part structure that is just so obvious, and it's this incredible story. So, that would probably be a good time to pass this out. 
So you guys are familiar with uh, the Bible Project, an incredible ministry. Um, I never thought I would become such a vocal advocate for a cartoon ministry, but their stuff is so good. And truth be told, I think it's because they know how to stay in their lane. For these, like they, first the the guy, the main guy, the main voice in the in the um, movies or the videos, he is a he's he's got his PhD or whatever in linguistics, uh, particularly Semitic languages, which really helps him when he does Old Testament books. And they do a lot to bring in a lot of uh, like high-ranking, uh, punch above their weight type scholars to help them with their videos. So they're just they're not perfect, but they are very very good. So. Mark has, you can see this three-part structure. Now, this might be small. My eyes are probably not that great compared to yours. Um, if I were to just ask you, um, what's one answer to the question, who is Jesus? Just start throwing out some answers. Son of God, the Messiah, Son of Man, which is a, yeah, I mean those three, those three titles are incredibly related. Our Lord and Savior, King, we're getting into his offices, so what are some of his other offices? The high priest, the highest of the high priests, and then prophet. prophet. The suffering servant is going to be a huge concept to the identity of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Um, as you as you study through the, the gospel of Mark. I found it, you know, again, it, it helped that we were going through it last week at such a breakneck pace. You start to pick up um, repetitive ideas when you go through something just quickly and deeply at the same time. Um, I noticed that there are a lot of minor characters that ask questions about Jesus' identity throughout the gospel. And so I just kind of developed a little symbol I only use for Mark thus far, but I just started putting the letter Q next to all these questions and underlining them because it's amazing how they'll ask these questions and then Jesus either answers them or answers them with his actions. And it, it started to get comical because like chapter after chapter you have people questioning who is Jesus? Who is his identity? And then the fun part about Mark is that it's not until the very end that anyone gets it right. And the person that gets it right is one of the guys that's nailed him to the cross. And he's a Roman soldier who works for Caesar. He is the absolute epitome of uncleanness and evilness in the mind of, of Mark's readers. And he's the first one to, to understand truly this is the Son of God. And it's like the questions have been asked all along, and it's just confusion after confusion. And I get it a little bit, and then the confusion again. And then at the end, the question is answered. Um, so you, you see this three-part structure here. And it's... it's um, like Luke, it is somewhat geographical. So it begins all up in Galilee. Mark has no infancy narrative. Mark does not tell us the Christmas story. Mark does not tell us the story of Jesus in the temple when he's 12, debating the religious scholars. 
Mark just opens up at John the Baptist's ministry, um, baptizing in the Jordan River, and Jesus shows up. And then the first eight chapters, eight and a half chapters, um, or seven and a half chapters, are all up in the Galilee. So if you notice that the, the other Gospels, they have like these Jerusalem features early on. And Jerusalem's really important. Jerusalem becomes important later in Mark. But we have Galilee. And then if you look at that middle section, there's this, um, the, the latter half of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10 is on the way to Jerusalem. And then chapters 11 through 16 are, are where time slows down. So if you look at the first seven and a half chapters there on the left, that is three years of ministry covered in that much time. By the time you get to um, chapter 11, from 11 to 16 is less than a week of time is covered. So, many scholars describe Mark as a passion story with an extended introduction. Um, you, could flip that, you could flip that around. You could say it's a story about Jesus' life and ministry with, uh, with an extended epilogue. I mean, you can play that game. But it's interesting to notice the different uh, treatments on um, what would be three years of ministry versus about a week of time in Jerusalem. So some of these, the, you can see in the, the Bible Project's like little black bar there at the top of each box. The first one focuses on the identity of Jesus. The second one focuses on what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah. So you, you, you get uh, in the first section, the, the identity of Jesus, you get this idea that Jesus starts doing things only God does. And it's just blowing everyone's mind. Tells waves to stop. He walks on them if he feels like it. He feeds a lot of people. Um, you'll get in chapters 3, 4, and 5 this issue of cleanliness and holiness, where, um, like, we often think of holiness as either being sinful or not sinful. And that's, there's, there's an element of truth to that. But really, holiness is all about your proximity to something that is holy or your proximity to something that is not holy. Or another way of saying it is, how close are you to what is clean? Or how close are you to what is unclean? Have you touched a dead body? Or the, all these bodily fluids? Have you touched someone with a skin disease or mold? Blah, 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 blah. All that stuff, you did not sin, but it renders you unholy and unclean. Now, the interesting thing about holiness, if you read Leviticus, is you can't catch holiness. You can only gain it by removing unclean things and setting aside a certain period of time, making the appropriate sacrifices. But unholiness is unbelievably infectious. You go around anyone who is unholy, you are rendered unholy. You touch a dead body, you are now unholy. So unholy is, is contagious. To be holy is not contagious. To be holy takes a whole lot of work. Jesus is weird in the sense that he's the first person to show up on the scene and he mingles with unclean people, and he doesn't catch it. In fact, he's the only person that, when he touches an unclean person, it goes the other way. He holies them. And this is something that only God has ever done in the Bible. Like, holiness can only ever be conferred by God in the Old Testament. Jesus shows up. He does not catch leprosy or become unclean when he touches a leper. When the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years touches him, she is, she's 12 years, she's unclean. Did you know that she would not even be allowed, in terms of Jewish law, to, to uh, reside in the same house with her family? 
and uh, and without getting into the weeds, she she has also been um, scorned by people because twelve years of bleeding as a woman does means that she's also likely childless, and she is like she has no social capital in society. She would have to stay away from everybody lest she make other people unclean. And out of sheer desperation, she runs through a cloud, rendering through a crowd, rendering anybody else that's there unclean by simply being there. But out of desperation, she goes and touches the tassel on Jesus' robe. And she does not infect him. And apparently, neither does she infect anyone else because that heals her. It's the most bizarre picture. Holiness flows out of him. And it's, that, that is only true of God. So in this first section, uh, uh, the first seven and a half chapters, you get this weird picture of this man who shows up and just starts taking on all the roles and functions of the God of the Old Testament. So who is Jesus? The, uh, the, the intended kind of answer to that or conclusion that you're, you're supposed to draw is that, well, I guess he's God. But then you get to the middle, the on the way section, on the way to Jerusalem. This would, this would correspond roughly, if you're, if you're reading your Gospels in parallel, this would correspond roughly to Luke chapters 9 through 19. Uh, in Luke 9, it says that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and he's on a death march to his passion. And that takes place over ten chapters in Luke's Gospel. Here you get it in just a few chapters. But this is where the, he, he spends a lot of one-on-one time with his disciples, and, uh, and he's explaining to them the, just the, the shock of what it's going to mean to be the Messiah. And he's, um, I actually don't think that they get it. You know, he, he, he asks, who do people say that I am? They say, well, that you're, you're Elijah. And then he says, well, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says that, uh, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. I, Peter didn't, I don't think Peter understood what he was saying. I think Peter thought, you're, the, um, you're God's anointed king who is to overthrow Rome. And Jesus just starts to talk about how, okay, yeah, I'm going to die and Peter's like, well, hold on, let's not talk like that. <laughs> and, and they don't really understand. But what Jesus is doing in these three chapters, the end of chapter 8 through uh, the end of chapter 10, it is a narrative um, version of Isaiah 52 and 53 playing out. So what's Isaiah 52 and 53? The suffering servant. So... Um, and in fact, if you, if you want to, uh, it would be a fun exercise to see how many times Mark talks back at Isaiah. Um, this gospel, probably more than any other, uses Isaiah's prophecies, especially um, chapters 40 through 66, which would be the, the last half of Isaiah. He connects these to being Jesus. But in 52 through 53, you get the story of the suffering servant, that God's chosen one is going to basically be stricken. He is going to be, he's going to be manhandled. He's going to be crushed. And he's going to bear the iniquities of others. And Jesus is explaining in this middle section of Mark, yeah, that's what the Messiah is going, that's what I'm here to do. And his disciples just struggle to understand this. Um, and it is, of course, capped off by that incredible Mount of Transfiguration experience where you have, God declaring Jesus to be the Son. Um, 
without going in and teaching what that'll be, somebody else will teach that, that lesson later on. Um, but Jesus, that's a, that's a kind of a symbolic way of Jesus saying that he has, he is A, the Messiah, the, the servant that God had, has always said he would send. And then he has Moses and Elijah standing next to him. And it says, in effect, that he is in line with and fulfilling Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. And so he is bringing to culmination all of God's plans and purposes in the Old Testament in God's beloved Son, there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, doesn't help the disciples understand it. They just want to build tents. But uh, um, it is nevertheless a really powerful turn in the story. And then at the very end, we find out how he becomes king in this shocking reversal that he becomes king by dying. And that's, that's kind of Mark's gospel. So, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the basic structure. Some themes that we're going to find. One, I mean, if you've heard some of them as we've walked through this, Jesus is God. So I'm just going to list off some of the famous stories of Mark. Mark 4, Jesus calms the storm. In Mark 5, Jesus casts out evil spirits um, from, the, uh, from the demoniac. Remember, he cast the spirits into the pigs. Interesting thing I found out about that last week is, um, you know when they, the, he, he's speaking to the guy with the demons, and he says, we are legion, I am legion. Um, I didn't realize that um, the, the Roman legionaries, they actually carried a coin that, that indicated that they were to be a part of that particular um, military cohort, and the coin had, uh, had a pig on it. That was, that was their famous like, symbol. And, and, and Jesus is asserting all sorts of dominance over the Roman imperial cult and the uncleanliness that's associated with swine. And, uh, and anyway, there's so many little nuggets in Mark that I didn't know were there until I looked a lot deeper. And uh, we'll come to those as we, as we get them, but maybe as I remember some here, I'll just mention them. Um, another theme, Jesus is the servant of God. Again, that's kind of the middle part of Mark. Um, in, at the beginning of the gospel, it says that Jesus is God's son. So that's the, uh, the baptism scene where uh, the, the dove is floated, it floats down and, um, and God speaks and says, This is my beloved son. There's a name. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Um, he has the authority to both heal and forgive sins as only the servant of God could. So if you recall, this would be, uh, this would be Mark chapter 2, the story of the man who's lowered through the, through the ceiling the paralytic. In, uh, in the back half of Mark chapter 2, Jesus hangs out with tax collectors. And um, there's something really cool about that story because this is the calling of Levi. And so imagine if, you're, if, you're like a Hebrew, if you have a Hebrew ear um, and, you, and he says, and, he, and he, he looks at a man named Levi and you're like, oh, like the Levites, this is probably going to be a really holy person. Remember, cleanliness and uncleanliness are big themes here. This will be a really uh, holy person. And this is Levi, the tax collector. You're like, crap, no, he's not holy. Um, he's terrible because tax collectors abuse their people and they collect taxes for, to support their own military and they just, they, they, they rip their own people off. They're terrible, terrible people. Um, that's not to say anything about modern, like the IRS. That's, that's ancient tax collectors. Um, and then it says that Jesus, like the, the, the unholiness just keeps compounding. This is that Jesus goes to his house and has a party with a bunch of tax collectors. And, uh, and then you have the Pharisees and the scribes who are really, really, like they, in their minds, they are the cleanest and holiest people in the world. They don't get it. And Jesus looks right at them and says, like, um, like yeah, I came to call, to, to call the sick. Those, I did not come to call those who are well. 
And really, we should probably read that is, I did not come to call those who think they're well, but to call those who know they're sick. And, and so you have this, this servant of God who recognizes his mission is to those who need, and, and really, to be served. In uh, chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Those are both servant-type offices. In Mark 14, Jesus is anointed by the, the year's worth of, of money spent on nard by uh, a, Mary, a lady named Mary. Um, actually, I don't think we get her name in Mark, but we put that together from the other Gospels. And he, he is so obsessed with service, he wants everyone to let her do this and says that what she's done, what she's doing here will be remembered forever. As, as the gospel is told. He's, I've always thought that's really interesting that he's so interested in her being remembered, but it's her testimony as the gospel's being told. It's the gospel being remembered. That's the emphasis in that story. And then, like the servant, but maybe shockingly, uh, especially to the disciples and to probably Mark's earliest readers, shockingly so, it proves that he's the servant in the fact that he's killed. Because again, Isaiah 52 and 53. Another big theme, uh, maybe this could be like a parallel theme in Mark's Gospel, is the theme of redemption paired with new creation. And that's a big Isaiah theme. If you look at uh, Isaiah 55 and on, 55 through 66, big theme is new creation. God is going to do a new thing here. Um, one of the flagship verses in Mark 1 is that um, Jesus kind of gives us a picture of what the gospel is in verses 14 and 15. Like The good news is to repent and to believe. And so you have this, this redemption that's available there. Um, later in Mark 1, he calls his earliest disciples and asks them to, to follow him and fish for men. Now, I, I, won't, I won't spoil it because that one's next week, but I did find out a, a fascinating... Um, idea about what it means to fish for men. I have always thought that it meant that you would evangelize people and catch them and bring them into the Jesus boat. And uh, actually, like fishing for men, uh, okay, I'm going to spoil it. Fishing for men is, um, is to preach a, a, a message of condemnation on people. And so I've never really put that together. Uh, who's teaching next week? Drew. Drew knows that. That's I already talked about huge point, thanks. <laughs> Um, anyway, so there's some, there's some interesting little nuggets there. Maybe one of the best things you can do when you read a familiar story is to slow down on the parts that are most familiar and ask yourself why. Why do I think that fishing for men is only positive? It, does, it doesn't like exclude evangelism that brings people into the kingdom, but it has another beefier layer to it that I've never seen that you find in, say, uh, Jeremiah and Amos. Um, in uh, continuing the theme of redemption, new creation, in Mark 2, he talks about new wineskins, and he says that some people are just satisfied with the old wine. They hate the idea of new wine because they like what they already have. And he's saying this to Pharisees in this not-so-cryptic way of saying, like, your system has satisfied you, so you have no room for new wine. And, uh, and we'll find that, that things like uh, wine, is, it's not just a fun story about a drink. Who, who, who are the vineyard in the Bible? People of God. Who's the, who's the one who tends the vineyard? God. And, uh, and it says that he's making new wine. So read, read that story for what it is. Um, in Mark 4, you have the parable of the sower, which involves us in the plan of redemption, that we, we, um, we are to scatter seed like crappy farmers. Like, have you ever wondered why Jesus t- like holds up the, the sower as this really awesome person. It's like, if you talk to a farmer, they would never throw seed on like the sidewalk. 
they would not be so wasteful. And, uh, and it tells you things about the inefficiency of the kingdom. It tells you about um, the, the lack of success that comes with evangelism. It tells you who does the growing. And it, it tells you that we're involved with God in the process of bringing others into this new creation, this new kingdom. In Mark 14, you have the Lord's Supper, which talks, that's a beautiful picture of redemption and new creation. And then it ends with, as Jerry pointed out, it ends with just this stark, um, like they saw that, that uh, the tomb was empty and they ran away scared. And, uh, and it ends with this, basically this question to, to the reader, um, okay, are you going to follow him or are you going to run away scared? That's the implied question. And uh, it's inviting you into this story of redemption and new creation. Um, any questions? I don't have a whole lot more, but I don't want to, I'm just vomiting at this point. I think it's going to be helpful. I got one more thing to, to pass around. To, uh, yes. Yes. The word immediately. So in a book with like 16 chapters. You would think that a word like immediately might be used some, some uh, number of times. And I believe the last time I counted, it's used 42 times. Um, Mark seems to write his gospel like my sister-in-law texts. Now let me explain that. My wife's little sister, it's like where you and I would breathe or put a comma, she presses send. And then my wife's phone just vibrates slowly, slowly off the table. And before my wife can say anything, there's like ten short half sentences or thoughts. And, um, and maybe that's just a generational thing. It makes me want to turn my phone off when people start doing that to me. Um, commas and periods, use a semicolon. I'm, I'm for it. Just one thought and it hits in. But... Mark seems to write like that. And it's, it's almost like uh, he keeps saying, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And he's just moving the gospel along quickly. So it's the Greek word, if you, if you read any commentaries, um, and I would have some that I would suggest if you wanted um, kind of an all-in-one good commentary on Mark, but it's the word euthus. And it's just, it, it's like his favorite conjunction. So he moves from story to story to story to story. It's like, and they, and they are by and large concentrated in the first half of the gospel. So you get into like the passion narratives, and the, immediately they almost vanish. There's a couple post-crucifixion and, and in kind of the resurrection account, but they really are concentrated in the first half of the gospel. And I think what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to just throw idea after idea after idea to substantiate his claim that Jesus is God. And so... I don't know if I have a whole lot more on that, but it immediately is his, his favorite transition phrase. And you'll, the weird thing is, um, like if you use the CSB, they have translated it out. Um, so like, not all the time, but it's not as apparent. I wish they would just use the word immediately because it's really, um, it, I think for Mark it has a, um, like a rhetorical reason to move the story along. So... The first time it's used is actually in verse 10. So in my CSB, it's translated as soon as. That's euthus, that's immediately. And then in verse 12, it's immediately the Spirit drove him out. Um, 
The next time it's used is in 20. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. And then in 21 it's used again. And so you, you wonder why is Mark like stacking these the way he is. But in 21 the CSB renders it. They went, out, they went into Capernaum and right away. So it's modern translations have taken away some of the effect that I think Mark intended by using the same word over and over and over and over. Um, doesn't hurt the story, but you, you miss, it's, it's, it's a little bit like reading the Psalms in English. You know you're missing some of the beauty that was d- baked into the Hebrew. Um, and so we sacrifice some of that to read it in our own language. Um, so that thing I passed around is, uh, is a fun little quote that, I, um, that is from a lady named Esther DeWall in a book called Living with Contradiction. And I think it, like, it, it does a really good job of explaining some of what Mark um, is holding up and some of what we as Westerners get frustrated with. So she is a, an English lady um, who is uh, really big into like Benedictine spirituality, even like Celtic spirituality, but don't, read, don't hear Celtic like a Druid. Hear Celtic like... like uh, St. Patrick, like Irish Christianity. So this is, this is kind of her specialty. And she really loves the, like, the mysterious aspect. She's, she's brilliant, so it's not that she doesn't understand things. She just thinks that there's an element of mystery to the faith that's really good, and she loves the idea of paradox. And I think that Mark holds up paradox a lot. And uh, you and I have a tendency to want to solve it, and Mark wants it to just hang. So I thought that this quote would be helpful for us as we prepare to read through Mark. She says, Living with paradox may well not always be easy or comfortable. It is not something for the lazy, the complacent, the fanatical. It does, however, point us the way to truth and life. For as we learn to live with paradox, we have to admit that two realities may, equally, may be equally true. We may be asked to hold together contrasting forces. The closer we come to saying something worthwhile, the more likely it is that paradox will be the only way to express it. The mind will never apprehend the truth of paradox. Only the heart can do that. She's quoting someone else there. I forgot to note who it was. Sorry. Um, But if paradox speaks to my human condition, it is also a vehicle for expressing truths about a God who becomes a man, a victor who rides on a donkey in his hour of triumph a savior who is executed like some common thief, a king whose kingdom is not here but to come, a God who tells me that when I am weak, then I am strong, a God whose promise is that in losing my life, I shall find it. Here is a God who proclaims the ultimate paradox of life through death, a paradox which can only be lived, it cannot be explained, it can be celebrated, it cannot easily be discussed, for in the cross we are presented with the ultimate paradox. Now, except for her mistake to say that a king whose kingdom is not here, but to come, it is both here and to come. Nevertheless, I think that is a beautiful um, little commentary on some of the tension you and I are going to discover in the gospel. And I think that often we struggle with many of the same um, frustrations with Jesus' message and his ministry and his role and, and, uh, and what things look like in his kingdom that his disciples struggled with. What, what, does, it make, what does it mean that it, it's a king who dies, a God who dies? It, it seems so inside out and backwards sometimes. 
but maybe it's just helpful for us to, uh, to sit with it and let it be. Now, I was reading this book this afternoon, totally unrelated to this, and in a section titled, Responding to God's Word, Baptism and Identity, I found a beautiful practical outworking of this paradox idea. So listen to this. The proclamation of the good news leads to baptism, the sacrament of the church in which the beginning of God's saving work in us is both signified and accomplished. Baptism discloses the paradox at the heart of the gospel we preach. The cross leads not to isolation, annihilation, despair, or defeat, but to abundant new life. Jesus' risen presence inspired and authorized his disciples to make more disciples, to go into all the world and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's Matthew 28. Immersed into his death, baptized into his death, Christians are now those who, like Jesus, are alive to God. That's Romans 6. Who share in the divine life of the Trinity and whose identity is not now separable from Jesus's. Um, I, I just thought that was a really interesting paragraph that connects what you and I experienced in baptism, what you and I continue to experience as we live into our baptism, is that that is a death that brings life. And I think that if we keep that kind of tension in mind as we read through a book like Mark's, um, that we'll be better for it. Um, I think that's all I had for an introduction to Mark. And I was late, so... That was my fault, but so were you, so we're fine. Um, any questions? I have, I have just like one little thing I want you guys to do together before we're, we're done, but I want to give room for questions. I know we didn't cover a whole lot as much as we just kind of looked at the whole thing. Yeah. So Mark is just watching Jesus and just walking around and recording things. And then when you, well, Luke is doing the same thing, but how come they don't always, the stories sometimes are at different places and how come? Yeah. So talk about the uniqueness of each perspective of the gospel, just, just so that as more of a perspective on why, when we talk about Mark's gospel, it, it has a context of, this is his perspective with the, with the purpose. Yeah. Um, I think that Mark's perspective... Well, for, for example, in terms of the stories. Um, all of the gospel writers play with the chronology. Now, what they're not doing is they're not, they're not changing things to be deceitful. They're arranging material to prove a point. Um, it's just like I could tell a story about Lauren and then tell a story about Jared... And I'm telling those stories back to back, not because they may be happened back to back, but because they have something to do with one another and I'm connecting them narratively. And that's what the gospel writers do. So John's the worst. John does not care about chronology. Now, when I say John's the worst, John's my favorite. He doesn't care about chronology at all. He just swirls. And so he jumps back and forth. And then oddly enough, it's because of his writing that we actually know that Jesus, his ministry was three Passovers long. The other gospel writers don't really help us with that information. But uh, he doesn't put things in order. He rearranges them very thematically. Um, you know, he's got the book of 
um, signs and then the book of glory. So like the first 11 chapters and then the last 11 and a half, 12 chapters. Um, he, he divides those things to do something different. Matthew arranges in the five-part um, section that I described. Luke's is very geographically arranged. Um, so it's not chronologically following Jesus' ministry. It's geographically dealing with what he did in certain places, even though he didn't do all those things in that place at that same trip. Um, Mark's is arranged somewhat geographically, um, but I think that Mark's intention is to, is to encourage, uh, probably more than the other three Gospels, to encourage um, Christians who would be, by and large, um, the minority in their context. He's basically saying, look, <laughs> if your Savior is the suffering Messiah, you too will suffer. And so Mark has a big emphasis on that kind of suffering as a way of encouraging um, those who, who follow Jesus. But as to like, how he arranges things, I, I was going to say in, where is it? Yeah. At the end of chapter 12, he has this warning against the scribes. So that would be the, the professional writers, those who, who protected the Torah and made copies of it. They were about highly, probably some of the most highly educated in, people in society at that time. So there's a warning about, don't, don't listen to these people. And then right after that, he, he, it's like Jesus just looks over and he sees this noble woman giving all that she has. So he talks, he, 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 Mark is juxtaposing the opulence and the absurdity and the hypocrisy of the scribes with the devotion and the willingness to sacrifice to the extreme and the willingness to be abused by like hierarchical structures of the widow. And Jesus is, like Mark arranges those stories. Even if they didn't happen back to back, he arranges them so that we see them like in contrast to one another. And then right after that, Jesus condemns the temple. And so we are to read those stories as connected. That's why um, to read Mark with no verses or chapters is one of the best things you can do. Um, it would have been read aloud in one sitting to its original audience. It sounds crazy to us, but they didn't have Netflix or anything. So that was like they, they could sit and listen to long things. Um, so Mark's working on things like that, trying to prove his point that way. Okay, here's what I want you to do. And uh, had I been here on time, I would have done this, I would have handed these out. Whoa. I would have handed these out for, just whip those around. The first three questions I had so that you could have written them down. That's okay. Here's what I would like you to do is to write down the name of someone not in this room right now that should probably that you know, that should probably hear the good news of Jesus Christ as told by Mark. Write down a name of someone local um, that you have a relationship that you would like to, um, to have a conversation, or, or that, that you think needs to hear this message from Mark's gospel. And then, we're done, I'm done. Spend a few minutes together, kind of on your way out, talking with each other about what you're going to do about that person needing to hear the gospel. Are, and some options are, I'm going to invite them to come. Another option is, I'm going to learn as much as I can, and I'm going to tell it to them myself. 
Another option is I'm going to invite them to read Mark's gospel with me. Um, that's my background. I became a believer because somebody asked me to read John's gospel. And I only made it six chapters before I became a confessing believer of Jesus Christ. So um, the word of God has power. So there are lots of options here. But I would like you to, to intentionally like, foster a burden on your heart for someone that needs to hear that message. For someone, not, that, not someone that needs to hear us teach, someone that needs to hear the message of Jesus from Mark's gospel. So um, like I said, I'm done. Um, but I hope that you'll, you'll kind of linger and discuss with each other um, maybe who it is, how you can be praying for them, and what you might do to help them experience this good news. Sound good? Any announcements required here? There you go. We are done.